Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks as ever for tuning in. We have got, as ever, a lot to cram in. We're going to do it slightly differently this week, as I'll explain in a moment. But as ever, there is so much going on. The reason we're going to do it differently, if it's okay with you, and this is a regular rhythm, really, to the podcast for those of you just tuning in, and I know there are a lot more listeners each week. When I'm doing the King's Place live show, or in this era, the live stream show, I don't do my normal spiel at the beginning. I kind of have to keep that for the live show. So instead of doing the spiel, I'm going to tell you what I will be reflecting on at King's Place live at 7 o'clock on this Wednesday. And then we're going to go straight to your questions. I'm always saying we've got tons of brilliant questions. This is the time to go through them. The questions will, of course, touch on many of the topical issues on our mind as we navigate the fog of, God, so much. Anyway, before all of that, yeah, King's Place live on Wednesday. It's the day of Biden's inauguration. So I'm going to be reflecting a bit on Biden, who I think is a more interesting figure than the stereotype of a cautious centrist. What does centrist mean anyway? I find it fascinating, I'm going to reflect a lot on this on Wednesday, that he got into real trouble for stealing Neil Kinnock's speech from the 1987 general election. The speech, why am I the first Kinnock of a thousand generations to have got to university, etc. Sorry, I can't do Kinnock. I used to be able to do it. I'm going to have to look at the speech again. But I've read the speech. It's fascinating, that Kinnock speech. It's fascinating that Biden chose to lift it, and it tells us something about him. And from that, I'm going to segue on to Keir Starmer, the Labour leader who I think merits a bit more detailed scrutiny. We've done a bit in the podcast, and you've got some questions on him quite often. But a bit more detail segueing from Biden and Kinnock to Keir Starmer. And we'll have, as usual, a prediction at the beginning of the show. They're usually wrong, the results of the predictions, but you'll have a chance to make a prediction of news-making consequence. And then, of course, we'll have lots of questions live as they come in. So that's Wednesday. Please book your tickets in advance. You've got the password and all ready to go. And it's seven o'clock. And then it'll be, if you're busy, how will you be busy? We can't do anything these days. But if you are busy, the show is available for at least a week, I think two weeks afterwards, if you've got a ticket. So that's what we'll be doing for the Rock and Roll Politics live, the live stream, the latest lockdown special on Wednesday. Tickets available at the King's Place website. And I'll put the link in also on the blurb about this podcast. But now, enough of me. Let's go straight to your questions. And they are very varied and interesting. One of the great things, of course, is they reflect some of the things we've been discussing already. And we've been talking a lot about referendums. I think they are a useless device for choosing anything. I wouldn't decide or use a referendum to buy a pair of shoes at a shoe shop, although maybe I should because most of my shoes don't seem to fit. I always order shoes thinking they look cool and I'm in agony. So maybe I should have a referendum on what shoes I should buy. But anyway, I, on, on a trivial matter, I wouldn't use them. And on these epic matters that have kind of distorted everything that's happened in this country, no, 
I wouldn't go near them. But Louise Davis-Jones mentions she makes a whole range of interesting points, but on referendums, she mentions uh, the situation. uh, We're going to come to another email which makes a similar point. Uh, What about referendums where you have to have over 60% to win? What about referendums that are advisory only? Of course, our one on Brexit was advisory. But trying undoing that and claiming, oh, it was only a bit of advice, we're ignoring it. And what about, now this happens in Ireland a lot, preceded by regional people's tribunals to discuss implications and educate. They're all good ideas, actually, to make referendums more acceptable. I can see there might be ways in which they are used with these sort of conditions put in place. There was a referendum held in uh, the last days of the 70s Labour government for a Scottish uh, parliament then, kind of devolution set of proposals, where the idea was that the percentage figure had to be above 50% for yes. And uh, that was introduced and Callaghan's government didn't get to that point of the uh, margin of victory required and actually triggered the fall of that Callaghan government. So um, that was one point Louise makes. She also makes another one. We talked last week a bit about how Johnson can't or doesn't choose to think through consequences. I think I argued last week that one of the most important words and concepts in British politics, politics anywhere, is consequences. What are the consequences of X or Y? And unless they're fully thought through, politicians shouldn't do X or Y. And I don't think Johnson thinks through consequences. Louise asks, but where is the cabinet? Where are the civil service advisers? The personal advisers, who, she adds, might start by making him comb his damn hair. The hair thing's interesting. It must be deliberate. I think he, Boris Johnson, has decided it's part of a very successful projection of himself, the hair. It's worked for him wherever he's been, Eton, Oxford, uh, whether it's at the Oxford Union or pursuing glamorous girlfriends at Oxford or subsequently, or in rising to the top of the Conservative Party, the hair has worked for him as he sees it. It must be that. It can't be unintentional, the hair. He must have had a look at the way it looks, surely. But you're right again to ask where others come in. The cabinet are too scared to challenge him. Johnson is still mighty at the moment. That might change. If Labour were 20 points ahead in the polls, or indeed ahead in the polls, he'd be weaker. But he's won a big election just over a year ago, and the Tories are neck and neck or still slightly ahead, remarkably, given what's happened. And so he has total authority over his cabinet, the power of patronage. He can sack them if they start getting stroppy. And so they're too scared to do anything. His advisers might. He's now got in number 10 some much more substantial, serious figures than those shallow revolutionaries, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane. Kano, good old Kano. Uh, He's got some thoughtful figures in there. So perhaps they sometimes will urge him to reflect on the consequences of uttering things that clearly can't be the case, to put it politely, or doing things that might seem okay at the time, but have dark consequences. 
let's see. Uh, so advisors, number 10 is in a better place in terms of advisors. Cabinet, forget it. But anyway, thank you very much for your uh, questions and raising a whole range of very interesting points. Next email, and Patricia, forgive me if I don't get your surname pronunciation right, tell me if I don't. Patricia Malkahi, I think, Malkahi, anyway, uh, do, do let me know if I've wholly mispronounced it, Patricia. And Patricia listens to the podcast as I walk, and a few points occurred to me. Walking is a good sort of reflective way of listening to a podcast, I think. She mentions also that uh, uh, she lives in the UK but was born and educated in Ireland and their referendums have worked well, loosening the grip of the church on the body politic so that gay marriage and abortion were legalised. Good point again. Thanks to this podcast and your brilliant responses, I'm beginning to see in a slightly different light. She says on Boris, a classicist and an opportunist, bread and circuses, yeah, yeah. Many people voted for him simply because they found him amusing. He's more coherent on paper than verbally. He's certainly not coherent verbally. It's very interesting how hesitant he is. And again, like the hair, there's a mystery. Why so hesitant and tentative? Is it because he doesn't know really what he's talking about, which is quite possibly the answer? Is it because he's exhausted? Perhaps it's a combination of the two, but I saw him, I don't know if any of you did, he did that two-hour appearance in front of the liaison committee of uh, parliamentary chairs of select committees, chaired by Bernard Jenkin. And although some of them are formidable, like uh, Yvette Cooper is always absolutely formidable in a way that suggests she should be in that shadow cabinet, and it throws him. He's not used to scrutiny of that intensity except for Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's Questions. But he was so hesitant and incoherent and at odds with what was going on. He seemed to suggest that the movement between Great Britain and Northern Ireland was smoother than it's ever been in the history of the two countries. No, it's one country. It's in danger of becoming two, etc., uh, and Patricia also points out Erasmus, that lost scheme for British students. Why have there been no TV or radio programs showing its benefits? It would have been fascinating to follow a set of Erasmus students to explore the impact on their lives and attitudes. We've heard more about Rhodes than Erasmus scholars in recent years. Yeah, yeah. And she says it's because the UK is useless at giving credit to the EU. Yeah, it's allergic to doing so. And now, in some cases, terrified of doing so. And, yeah, it would be fascinating. I don't know people, you might actually, maybe some of you have done it, uh, have had the benefit of this Erasmus scheme. Maybe think, I wish I had gone on one. Uh, if it was around when I was a student three or four years ago. And so, I, a good idea. It would have been really interesting. And that was, throughout Britain's membership of the European Union, almost an allergy to saying anything good arose from it. And that's a really good example. Thank you for all those points. Mark Knight says, uh, oh, thank you for the podcast. I look forward to every week. Thank you very much. Rather than exercising while listening, I like to savour the experience by settling down with a glass of whiskey 
Wow, that's that's a great image. Not quite as you know, because this podcast, for those of you new to it, it's, it's part mindfulness. You know, uh, some of us are doing dry January, Mark. So a glass of whiskey is is out of bounds for a bit longer. But we're all those of us doing it almost there. But that's it's, it's a good image. A glass of whiskey ruminating as the lovely heat of the whiskey combines with the stimulus not of me but of the brilliant points and questions that come in and he oh mark talks about referendums too i don't know how you would assess it he writes but my impression was that project fear was more successful in the scottish referendum because the no campaign focused on repeatedly asking difficult practical questions what would the currency be? What about the border? What if Spain vetoes an independent Scotland's application for EU membership? Whereas the Remain campaign in the Brexit referendum just lined up authority figures to tell people how bad things would be. Yeah, and that's, looking back, it is partly to do, but only partly to do, with the fact that Remain fought a bad campaign. You don't lose that without having fought a bad campaign. However, I do think it is more than that. As I said, when I reflected on referendums, I would say you lot, so some of you are beginning to make me change my mind. But there is a problem. If you announce a referendum on something as complicated as Britain's membership of the European Union, what do you expect? Remain are going to go out saying it will be a disaster if we leave, and uh, the other side are going to say, look, if we leave, you're going to have 350 million quid a week for the NHS. Of course they are. And in a way, it's not the fault of the two sides, it's the fault of the Prime Minister who called it in the first place. David Cameron, where are you? But anyway, it's a good point. I'm kind of rethinking referendums in the light of these uh, very interesting exchanges. Evangeline Bell writes, she listens uh, to the podcast. She doesn't say what she's doing as she listens. But one issue I thought I'd ask you about, now this is interesting, is about the impact of Suez on France. We're not going crazy here. I reflected a bit last week on how Suez and, and the impact it had on Britain and the special relationship because Eden thought Britain should go it alone with Suez and with France and then America said well we're not supporting you and it ended that that was that was the crisis Eden had to pull out he suddenly realized that Britain you know all this kind of British supremacy kind of thing which existed then British exceptionalism actually needed America and that triggered this whole period of Britain-America and the so-called special relationship being so important. But what about France? Because they too were involved in that project. And, and, and Evangeline writes, although I know that the French were already moving towards European integration and that they were already withdrawing from their empire, it's always seemed to me to be symbolic that the year after Suez saw the Treaty of Rome, after all, the Suez fiasco was as much a humiliation for France as it was for the UK. It was a turning point for both countries in that the French turned towards Europe and Britain to the so-called special relationship. Yeah, that is very interesting. And she says, therefore, to some extent, Suez, the special relationship and Brexit are not unconnected. Yeah, that's very interesting. And so France made its choice in recognising that it could no longer go it alone. 
with the Suez Crisis by turning to a European project and Britain thought, right, that's it. We're dependent on America. And those two paths have been taken ever since in ways that uh, have led to where we are now, where uh, Macron in France is calling for greater European integration and Britain's out. So much started in the late 1950s. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm learning more about the centrality of that period um, with um, these conversations. And I'm writing about Rab Butler in a chapter for a book, which I'll tell you about another time because the book isn't quite finished yet. Uh, Thomas Brucknell, uh, sorry, Thomas Bucknell has written about Frosty, David Frosty. Johnson called uh, Frosty, yeah, good old Frosty. Uh, morning, Steve. It's astonishing that the government is preventing the Brexit Select Committee from taking evidence from David Frost. What do you think will happen in this saga? Yeah, it's very interesting. The Brexit Select Committee, in effect, is no more. It was chaired by Hilary Benn. And he asked that they could interrogate David Frost and Michael Gove on the deal, unveiled in a deal in inverted commas, because, you know, frankly, everything's just been kicked into the long grass. But uh, they asked if they could interview David Frost and Gove and were told no, that really, in effect, they no longer exist. And I think it is revealing a fear of scrutiny because, well, we've talked about it before, that deal is so conditional. There are so many issues kicked into the long grass, so many issues already unfolding. Fish, the story about Scottish fishermen unable to sell the fish in time and giving up. People giving up exporting into the UK, they can't be bothered to fill in the forms. And the Irish question still unanswered by the plastered together Irish protocol. Huge issues unravelling. Scrutiny is what I think they fear at the moment as the unravelling takes place. Uh, thank you for that question, Thomas. One from Matthew Daly. How odd is and ill-suited Boris Johnson is the most senior role in politics and terms of decision-making and seeing ahead is plain for everyone to see? So two questions. For the last five years, culture wars have become the defining political division. Brexit, of course, but on the Conservative side, the war on woke. For Labour, the Laura Piddock never kiss a Tory morphing into anti-Semitism. I kind of see what you mean by that morphing. It's quite a morph. Uh, will the culture wars that erupted at the US Capitol last week shape British politics? And how will it affect the balance of power in each of the main parties? Uh, Matthew, I don't um, think it will. Oh, incidentally, Matthew, this is great. Uh, Matthew listens to the podcast while walking around the farm, checking on his sheep. I really need it to be longer than half an hour. Well, the way things are going with this one, it might be. I got a phone call from the guy I used to catch moles who said he had just seen a big black cat, i.e. a leopard, moving uphill next to Hedgeline. Can't claim it was what I saw while listening to the podcast, but it did happen very close to me in real time, and he's a reliable witness. And before you ask, teetotal. Several farmers around here have suspected a big cat is at large 
because how we have found some dead sheep that have been killed and left in a way that you would expect of an animal killed by a big cat. There's no end to the lockdown excitement of rural Wales. Well, Matthew, I was so excited. I'm thinking of driving down to join you, but of course that's not allowed. But what activity? I, I, I know the podcast can have a very, you know, the equivalent of a very strong stimulant, uh, which can create images of big black cats. But um, the, I believe you, I'm sure that's happening as you are listening to our reflections on referendums and the war on woke and so on. On the substance of your question, I think the war on woke, etc., the, the, the cultural wars, so to speak, will not determine the fate of the two big parties in the next election or now. I sort of take an old-fashioned view that the criteria that have applied to elections for decades still, in the end, applies. The winning party tends to be able to combine a sense, and it's, it's artistry, it's not science, a sense that it has an exciting agenda for the future and is in command of that future uh, and can guide us towards it in a way that's dynamic and exciting, uh, that can be trusted in terms of the issues of trust, you know, tax, spend, defence, provision of decent public services, and the unique questions of the time, which party can convince the electorate it's got the way forward from the pandemic, not just economically, but the consequences, the lessons learnt from the period of this pandemic, you know, the structure of the public services. So, so much of the public services in England anyway are atomized and things. I think those are going to be the issues, but I might be completely wrong. I also think charisma matters. And one of the reasons the Tories are ahead is, you know, the Johnson hair question. I'm afraid it's as trivial as that. And, and Starmer's at the moment too rigid projection of himself. But I'll be talking more about that on the King's Place stream. Uh, Matthew also uh, asks about Rishi Sunak. Uh, and Matthew thinks he's overrated. I agree. I think that Sunak had this glorious honeymoon, as often is the case with new political figures who seem refreshingly distinct and authoritative. Uh, but he has made some bad calls over this pandemic, eat out to help out, urging uh, lockdown constraints to be lifted too early in the autumn, uh, hoping in his autumn financial statement to begin the retrenchment in a sort of Osborne-like way in terms of tax cut, tax rises and public spending constraints. He is more of a Thatcherite than Johnson, and the tensions there will uh, be vivid. So, Matthew, thank you. Back to the sheep. And um, keep looking out for a leopard moving uphill. We'll all be looking out. We'll all be seeing leopards as we listen to this. As I say, it is the equivalent of a very strong drug. Thank you. Uh, Jamie Taylor, uh, rock and roll, otter spotter, civilian assembly question. Well, Jamie's been on the same stimulant. I mean, he's, he's anyway, let's see what the question is. Oh, he listened uh, it, to it in the winter, to the podcast, the last one. Uh, this is Jamie. In the winter gloaming, whilst walking up our holy mountain, Arthur's seat, 
Ah, yeah, yeah. Hoping to spot the otter of Dunsapi Loch, currently Edinburgh's favourite inhabitant. So there we are. If you listen to this podcast, you spot otters, leopards. I mean, it's all happening. Anyway, he didn't he didn't spot it. But God, do I envy you going up Arthur's Seat. You're lucky being near Arthur's Seat, uh, near, of course, Edinburgh. And Jamie's reflecting on uh, referendums and in contrast to those held in Switzerland. Somebody wrote in last week, Mark Howells, saying how effective they were in Switzerland as a way of deciding issues. So, oh, he mentions, yeah, the Republic of Ireland. There's a lot about this. We need to go into this. You know, so in 2020, he points out the Scottish government convened a citizens' assembly to help determine constitutional and governance change for the country. I don't know what the outcomes were in this latter case, but by almost all reports, citizens' assemblies do seem to offer a way of raising the level and quality of public debate. Yeah, that's um, a good point. And I'll look up and see how that citizens' assembly did that was set up in 2020 by the Scottish Government, uh, because that is one hell of a challenge to determine the constitutional and governance change. And so... Yeah, I, I, I haven't followed that, and thanks for alerting me to it. This, I think, is the way forward. There's a heck of a lot on these uh, questions. Uh, Andrew Anderson also writes, I don't know whether you bump into Jamie looking for otters, Andrew, but he cycles, oh no, walks around an icy meadows in central Edinburgh. Again, I envy you with that uh, walk. I'm sure you're not looking for prolonged discussions with your listeners, but part of my point is, this is Andrew on his walk in Icy Meadows, that we would be talking at least as much, if not more, about Brexit if a referendum had been denied. I hate Brexit, but I recognise that in a democracy, referendum was the best way to settle the issue, just not the way Cameron Osborne did it. Yeah, well, I don't know, Andrew. You see... When Cameron called that Brexit referendum, there was no cry for it. There really wasn't. The EU as an issue of concerns amongst voters was way down. But there was a group of Tory MPs, in effect the ERG group, who were driving this issue to its denouement. They didn't at the time represent an obsession shared by the rest of the electorate. Although you do raise a wider point, Britain's relationship with the European Union was stormy from the beginning to the end. It tore apart political parties, so perhaps it merited another referendum. But I don't think there was a clamour for it at the time, except for within a part of the Tory party. Cameron, with his characteristically shallow calculations thought he could defeat that section by holding a referendum and winning it and we know what followed Uh, thank you very much enjoy that icy walk envious look out for otters Uh, nathan barodo writes uh dear c firstly i admire the consistency of your listeners and what they're doing while listening yeah same routine most weeks Mine varies greatly week on week, sometimes when I go for a walk, other times while sitting in the garden, and sometimes just wandering around the house aimlessly. I bet it's never aimless, these wanders. I would never do any intense exercise whilst listening because I wouldn't be able to concentrate. I know what you mean. When I'm listening to podcasts running, I find it very hard to run fast because I then can't concentrate. However, 
I don't run fast when I'm not listening to podcasts, really, if I'm honest. So I think it doesn't make a great deal of difference. Yeah, uh, Nathan uh, was wondering about Keir Starmer's speech on the family, in inverted commas, on Monday. Uh, In particular, what did you make of the discernible shift within Team Starmer, especially the head of policy, Claire Ainsley, towards viewing electoral politics as being driven by values rather than policies? Yeah, well, I, I, I did listen to that speech. I'm going to talk a bit more about Keir Starmer at the live stream on Wednesday, Nathan, which I hope you can make. At, uh, but I, I can see what he's trying to do. In uh, the focus groups of which they have become obsessed, the Starmer office, uh, Labour are ahead on questions about, in inverted commas, family values. So he's trying to plant the seed that Labour have the answers to address questions about family. I, I thought it was a bit vague, but it's it's not the time really for Starmer to launch serious policy initiatives. He's done it now, as you say, in this speech on Monday. He did a rather weak one, I thought, at the weekend, where he talked about uh, Britain being the bridgehead between America and the European Union. Blair used to use the phrase, but at least we were in the European Union when he used the phrase. It's a complete lift from Blair, but in a different context. It's got to be more original than that. But I think that the testing time will come when the sense of the pandemic being under control, and then he's really got to move fast. But I'm going to be reflecting more, if that's okay, on Wednesday, live at seven, on uh, Starmer. Um, A question from Dominica, from France. Your comments in recent podcasts regarding traits specific to Eton and public public school educated prime ministers struck a chord. My husband was head of maths at rugby for four years from 2011, during which time he was contractually obliged to live full time on the premises. This meant that I had to move in there too, whilst commuting daily to central Birmingham for my own work as principal of of Manda Portman Woodward, an independent fifth and sixth form college. So, in many ways, the two approaches to education couldn't have been more different. For example, the lives of every student at rugby are controlled, supervised and managed every minute of every day, except for a brief respite on Sunday mornings after a compulsory church service. Yeah, that is quite a structure. And Dominica goes on to write that the way her students were taught were much less uh, rigid and structured than that. She writes, I write the above in the expectation that you will one day pen a detailed observation, if not a biography of Boris Johnson. Well, there's a chapter in my new book, the paperback version of the Prime Minister's on Boris Johnson. Uh, but it's not a full biography, and it would be he he remains interesting in certain respects. But she says, I'm convinced that the education he received is very much at the core of his many numerous shortcomings. I think his family upbringing and Eton explain a lot, certainly the way Eton teaches history, which tends to focus on a kind of British exceptionalism uh, that he uh, shares. Alex Ingram asks about this term consequences, which is, I'm going to do more on consequences. It's almost a book to be written on consequences and leadership. And Alex writes, I like your riff 
on consequences and Boris Johnson and Margaret Thatcher. I mentioned last week that Mar Margaret Thatcher, while being much more across detail than Johnson, didn't really think through the consequences of some of her policies. I wonder, this is Alex, if it's just a deep ingrained belief about how the UK should work for Conservatives, that it isn't their job to fix things. That's the market. Uh, yeah, that's a good thought. Alex says he sits in London having a wet trudge round the park listening to the podcast. Kind of a bit of a miserable image, but it's a good, it's an interesting thought that consequences perhaps for ideological reasons are less at the forefront of the minds of Johnson and the very different character of Thatcher because they do not feel there is a responsibility on their part or the part of the state to respond to the consequences of policies. So yeah, that's um, a very good point. Uh, Kathy Mears writes saying, I continue to listen to your podcast. I'm not revealing what I do while listening. Ah, that's got me really interested. Uh, so much is happening at such great speed that it's hard to formulate a question that won't become irrelevant as soon as the question send button is sent. Yeah, just a few days ago, you were talking about how interesting it is that Pence was separating himself from Trump, but now they seem to have kissed and made up, at least partially. But yeah, I, I know what you mean, Kathy. but what a drama that is, even the making up. I'd love to be a fly on the wall. Anyway, uh, when they made up and when they fell apart. Cathy says, what I thought was interesting in view of your oft-repeated idea that the ability to tell a story is a key to prime ministerial success was an article in The Guardian in which a columnist writes, the common element is not a likeness but an absence. It's the lack of rudimentary storytelling. This is in reference to Keir Starmer. Starmer tells his audience what he thinks, but he doesn't invite us on a journey or paint a picture of the destination. Cathy, I'm going to reflect on that a lot on Wednesday, if that's okay. But yeah, I am obsessed about the need for uh, people to tell a story. Uh, it's the one of the arts of leadership. I call it teaching in that book on uh, prime ministers. Ian Lamb writes, I really enjoy your podcasts and listen to them in bed. Good place to be. Which I appreciate is at the less active end of the spectrum of where they're listened to. Well, you never know. Anyway, Ian is lucky enough to be in uh, Edinburgh as well. A lot, lot coming from Edinburgh this week. And he says, although I was wondering about the often stated position that Boris Johnson won't grant a second Scottish independence referendum because he might lose and therefore have to resign, that's my view. I agree that it's unlikely that he would grant one. Presumably any clamour for him to resign would arise, though, because he would be expected to win that referendum and losing it would be seen as a failure. Yeah, he would, even if the polls suggest he's going to lose. But as I said earlier... If the poll suggested that, he's not going to hold it. However, what if support for independence continues to rise and say it stayed at around 60% or more for over a year or so? In such circumstances, independence might be seen to have become the settled will of the Scottish people. A referendum held in these circumstances might therefore be seen as a foregone conclusion. And so would losing a referendum that he expected to lose. Would that then be a resigning matter yeah that's the, uh, yeah god you've got me thinking Ian. I'm, i might have to go and have a lie down in my bed 
while I reflect that because, yeah, let's think about it. A prime minister calls a referendum which looks from the beginning as if he's going to lose. Therefore, he doesn't have to resign when he loses it. Yeah, I, the, I just still think they're called the Conservative and Unionist Party. To hold a referendum which leads to the breakup of the union, I think, is a resignation issue. People will say, why did you hold it when you knew you were going to lose? But if it goes to 60%, as it well might, Ian, the pressure will be intense. But what about having some of those things that our listeners have been writing in about, you know, a, a higher threshold for change, more informed debate beforehand, and so on? I don't know. But I still don't think he will call it uh, on that basis. And I still think he would have to resign if he lost. Thank you. You can just now relax in bed. Uh, Den Cart Cartilage writes, I enjoy listening to your latest podcast over lunch. Very civilised. I have been known to get the dumbbells out to listen previously, but not this time. Yeah, dumbbells, that is at the other end. Bed, dumbbells. They're the, it's a broad church of activity. I'm also looking forward to the next live event at King's Place. Thank you very much. See you on Wednesday at 7. My question is about the next Tory leader. What do you think might be the better succession strategy for leadership hopefuls? Jeremy Hunt's tough lockdown approach or Rishi Sunak's regular disappearing act? Great question, because they will both be thinking about this. They both want to be the next leader. And Jeremy Hunt's tough lockdown approach, while at odds with uh, some Tory MPs, we know who they are, is wholly at one with public opinion. I mean, voters are up for tough lockdowns for all kinds of reasons. So he's he's okay with that because he won't be at odds with even the Tory membership, I suspect. It's a group of MPs who are against these lockdowns, uh, but even they are struggling. Did you notice that attempt by Steve Baker? formerly of the ERG group, saying, you know, Johnson might have to go if we have more of these lockdowns. And he had to withdraw his attempt. I mean, he just constantly conspires. He's only happy when removing a Tory leader. But that's not where public opinion is. Rishi Sunak's disappearing act is fascinating. Here is someone who was relishing his high profile, but has had nothing to say on the Brexit deal, has had nothing much to say on the latest lockdown. He has made, as I said earlier, a series of wrong calls and therefore has opted for this very low profile. He doesn't want his fingerprints on anything contentious. And I think that's the way he's approaching his embryonic leadership attempt. But those two will be making their moves with that in mind. So thank you for which which is doing better. Well at the moment I would I would say Jeremy Hunt is this is not a prediction he'll be the next leader. But I think questions are being posed about Rishi Sunak. It often happens after the idolatry. Ah, maybe he's not quite as good as we thought kind of thing and that's the phase Sunak is in. Paul Cooper writes your podcast raise as many questions as you try to cover each week. Yeah and we're answering a lot of questions this week, and they raise many more questions, so please keep them coming. From city to cabinet and back to banks, newspaper to cabinet and floating policy back, lobbyist think tank to government to back, public school and Oxbridge PPE to politics. Along the way, did a version of groupthink take over, where in the 
ever-diminishing gene pool of public debate, a few policies are held up as the shining lights in an otherwise cloudy crystal ball of a country. A rather poetic pool, lots of metaphors and uh, symmetries. I, I, I'll tell you, the most interesting thing I've read so far this year was a leader in the Financial Times saying a consensus formed that the Osborne austerity package was the only credible response to the financial crisis and the FT said we were part of that consensus and we were wrong and I've talked about this before whatever tends to be fashionable orthodoxy at every, any given time is usually wrong but it's so powerful it overwhelms all opposition or all challenge to the orthodoxy and I remember on the BBC, interview after interview with Labour politicians, Ed Balls and others, what are you going to do about the deficit? What are you going to cut? Will you cut as much as Osborne? If not, aren't you ignoring the deficit? It was all built around an orthodoxy, which now many regard as wrong. But not, I think, Rishi Sunak, to go back to him. Uh, so, yeah, great point. I'm suspicious of orthodoxy. I want to talk about that at King's Place on Wednesday as well. Thank you. Uh, Scott McDonald writes, Loving the podcast, which I tend to listen to in a hot bath with a glass of wine. Decadent. Decadent, Scott. But I like the idea. And after dry January, I might be joining you. Not in the same bath, but you know what I mean. I like the idea of a hot bath and a glass of wine. Even before the sudden resignation, oh yeah, this is another interesting dimension to the whole independence drama. Even before the sudden resignation of Scottish Labour's little-known leader, Richard Leonard, I was pondering one of the points you made in your last podcast by someone who claimed that Scottish Labour's revival lies in turning against devolution and aggressively promoting the supposed benefits of a unitary state. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting sort of counterintuitive suggestion. But Scott thinks that would be a disaster for Labour. Firstly, it's too close to the Scottish Tory strategy that those two parties would be competing on the same turf when the Tories are more closely and confidently associated with that form of promoting the union. It certainly wouldn't tempt back the many voters who left Labour for the SNP. So my question is, this is from Scott, is it not the case that above all else, the party that persuades the Scots that it will fight hardest for their interests is best rewarded electorally? People in Scotland, as elsewhere, overlook the one key ingredient that is crucial to electoral dominance in Scotland, convincing voters that they will tenaciously champion Scotland's interests. That's how the Liberals dominated in Scotland in the 19th century, how the Tories dominated in the 50s, and that's the current key to the SNP success. I suppose it depends how you can define Scotland's interests. Um, and that is a huge challenge. But it is interesting that you don't think the route back for Labour is to become the sort of unequivocally uh, unionist party, not Devo Max, uh, not Home Rule, which is what was suggested last week. Thank you, Scott. Enjoy, enjoy the wine in the hot bath. I'll be interested in what you think a, a, a distinctive definition of Scottish interest is that is not what Nicola Sturgeon is suggesting or what 
the others vaguely are suggesting in terms of what Devo Max or something along those lines. So do let me know. Might take a few more glasses. It's it's the Scottish political situation is fascinating, and uh, the emails we get from all over Scotland are really interesting uh, in terms of shedding light on that febrile debate. We haven't, by the way, next week perhaps or soon, the interesting drama between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond. I mean, that too is a play. If the fallout of Trump and Pence is cinematic, what about Sturgeon and Salmond? And finally, from uh, Noah Keat, a regular correspondent, uh, Noah says, what about a political book recommendation of the week? It would be excellent to be hearing about books worth reading, given we all seem to have more time on our hands. Yeah, God, we have got more time on our hands. Uh, That's a nice thought. And I have decided to nominate a couple of books from the distant Uh, but recent past, distant as in not contemporary. I'm writing a book at the moment which made me have to turn to a couple of memoirs from big Labour figures, and they were Roy Jenkins and Dennis Healy. And they are really worth reading. You've probably all read them. But it's, it's not just about the politics, although that is interesting, but what these people crammed into their lives, the cultural pursuits and the languages they could all speak. I mean, they were in a different league to the current crop of politicians, and, they are, and they're very readable. They write well, both in effect with journalists and authors as well as politicians, as were a lot of people of that generation. There's one brilliant thing, actually. If you want to see an elegant political writer, get hold of Michael Foote's anthology of essays called Debts of Honour. I I read it just as he became Labour leader, and I thought, oh, God, he's such a brilliant writer. I hope becoming Labour leader doesn't wreck everything. Well, we know what followed that. It's it's beautiful to read, and Foote is an enthusiast as well, and his choice of heroes are really surprising. So I recommend those from that kind of era. In terms of contemporary stuff, well, it's not contemporary, actually. It's a bit further away from the that kind of 70s early 80s period i've mentioned it before but i'll mention it again if you want to get an insight into the closeness of political journalists and ruling politicians and all that come with it you know the murdoch dimension the bbc dimension get hold of you can get get secondhand copies of woodrow wyatt's diaries They're very gripping about the 80s and 90s, the fall of Thatcher, the fall of John Major. He was close to both of them. He spoke to them on the phone twice a week. And he was a columnist, you know, for the news of the world. He was known as the voice of reason. Wholly inappropriate title. But an interesting example of how media and politics can become incredibly intertwined. Uh, He was a big influence, maybe exaggerated his influence in those diaries. Of course, it was his daughter, Petronola Wyatt, who had a fling with Boris Johnson. Anyway, there are a few recommendations. Now, I'll give some more thought and put out some more in the um, uh, weeks to come. Thanks for suggesting it. It's a good idea. Anyway, God, we've gone way over the normal time. So those of you who said it wasn't long enough to feed my sheep and to see leopards and otters 
I hope you've seen otters and fed sheep extensively and had wine in hot baths and whiskey whilst ruminating and all the other things that have been going on this week. Thank you for some brilliant questions. As I say, I'm going to be reflecting more on Biden. Uh, the show is live at 7 on the King's Place website and it will be following Biden's inauguration that day. So I hope you can all join me for that. Plenty of time for live questions, which also has a different dynamic and an unreliable prediction. So that's Rock and Roll Politics live this Wednesday at 7. And thanks for brilliant questions. Keep them coming in. I'll put the email address on the blurb that accompanies the podcast. I think most of you have it anyway. And see you all next week. Thank you.